This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode 4, written and performed by Frank Burton. The story you're listening to right now is being released as a book, by the way. It will also be called Brollywood. It's the third in the Ragbag series, the first two being Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. Don't worry if you're not familiar with those books or the original podcast that spawned them. This is a good place to start. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by buying several copies of all three books and giving them away to everyone you know, or just give one book to one person. That's a reasonable start. Let's get on with the story. As the days passed... I settled into a routine. I'd spend my daytimes lounging around in my room or going for walks or the occasional drive to keep the van ticking over. I cooked three meals a day for myself and Uncle Claude. Actually, considering the diversity in our dietary habits, it was more like six meals a day, but that was fine. I enjoyed Claude's backhanded compliments on my cooking skills. With each new dish, he'd be astonished at my competence. I'd suspected that Claude would be extremely annoying to live with, but actually the opposite was true. Having lived on my own for so long, it was nice having him around. The bickering was comforting too. Arguments with Claude had their own unique rhythms, with his high squeaky voice and my low nasal drawl finding their own kind of harmony, a juxtaposed falsetto and baritone that complemented each other nicely. I'd spend my evenings working on my book, which was coming along well. One evening a week, I'd record my podcast in the back of the van, on the driveway. I preferred it there, without the possibility of Uncle Claude unexpectedly bursting into the room. I'd usually fall asleep in the van afterwards, having become too comfortable to bother shifting location. On one of these evenings, four weeks into my stay at Uncle Claude's house, the van got broken into. I was sleeping there at the time, but didn't realise what had happened until the morning. The back doors had been forced open. One of them was hanging ajar. At first, it appeared that nothing had been stolen. Phone, wallet, laptop, everything of value was still in its place. They could easily have stolen the van itself. The keys were right there, on full display on the little table by the bunk. It was only on closer inspection that I realised what they'd been after. I couldn't handle the sound of my own heartbeat, so I slipped my shoes on and ran down the road. This made my heart beat even faster, so I stopped running, took a few deep breaths and sat down on the pavement. I sat there for a while, my mind racing, desperately trying to make sense of how and why and what and if and but and maybe and... (sighs) Okay, Frank, slow down. Take another breath. Here's what I knew. Someone had broken into the van and stolen Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary. Not many people knew of the book's existence. Very few people did, in fact. Jamie knew. It wouldn't have been him. Glinda knew. It wouldn't have been her. Obviously, Benedict knew. Oh, and whoever happened to be listening to my podcast when I mentioned it on there. 
I mentioned it a few times as it happens. I assumed the listeners would agree it was a funny story and not something to be taken entirely seriously. Although I had stressed more than once that the plan myself and Benedict had formulated was achievable given the research we'd done and the hours we'd spent planning the thing, recording each detail in the robbing diary. In hindsight, I probably should have kept the whole thing to myself. I returned to the van and called Benedict. At some point during the phone call, I came to a realisation. For some reason, I thought I'd solved the whole thing. I remember my old friend, Jenna, who fancied herself as a criminal mastermind, and maybe that's exactly what she was. Anyway, I'd always suspected she was subscribed to my podcast wherever she was in the world. We were no longer on speaking terms, but I like to think she listened anyway, the closest I could get to speaking directly to her again. I told Benedict not to worry. The book was in safe hands. My old friend had stolen it. She was harmless. Well, actually, she was probably a criminal genius, but even so, there was no real cause for alarm. I went inside the house, made some breakfast for Uncle Claude, then popped downstairs for a lie down. I woke up around midday. It took me a minute to remember what had happened. I remembered the conclusion I'd reached, that Jenna had been the culprit. Having slept on it, this theory seemed ludicrous. It really wasn't the sort of thing Jenna would do. I'd only offered some vague hints as to what kind of information was contained within the robbing diary on the podcast, so anyone who happened to be listening had very little incentive to attempt the cumbersome task of tracking me down and stealing my notebook from under my nose. Whoever had stolen the book clearly had more information than the cryptic hints I'd made publicly available. Off the top of my head, there were three possibilities. Firstly, the only person other than Benedict who'd been treated to the full extent of our bank heist plans was Glinda. So maybe Glinda was some kind of criminal mastermind. Secondly, it's possible that Benedict himself had blabbed it to one of his mates in the acting world. Thirdly, Someone else had access to our conversations. Private dialogue between myself and Benedict was being recorded and analysed, which had led to the assumption that Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary was a document worth stealing. The first two possibilities didn't seem likely. Glinda seemed like a smart person, but she wasn't a traitor, she was a nurse. Everyone was calling nurses heroes nowadays, even the politicians who'd audibly cheered in Parliament at the end of the previous year when a motion to increase nurses' pay was successfully voted down. That's right, that happened. Benedict wouldn't have given the game away either. He was much more cautious about this whole thing than I was. This could only have meant that, as terrifying as it sounded, option number three was the only explanation. I checked my phone and saw two missed calls from Benedict's. I called him back. Sorry mate, I said, I was sleeping, what's up? It's good to hear you're taking all of this in your stride, said Benedict, but I'm really rather worried about this friend of yours and what she might do. Oh, don't worry about that, I said. I leapt to the wrong conclusion, it's not really her type of thing. Okay, that's one thing. But now we have the uncertainty of not knowing who has the book, and we really need to know, Frank. I know we do, I said. Leave it to me, I'll work on it. What exactly are you going to do? I'm not sure yet, I'll do something. Trust me, OK, I'll get this thing sorted. How? As I say, I don't know. Give me a chance to think, at least. I'd be happy to hire a private detective, he said. Good to know, I said. That's an option if all else fails. 
Rather an ironic option, he said. Is it? Well, yes, I... Look, I know you don't know this about me, Frank, but I famously played the parts of a private detective in a BAFTA-winning TV drama. Congratulations, I said. I'm sure it was every bit as good as cabin pressure. Some say it was better. I doubt that, but congrats anyway. Listen, I'll let you know how my investigations go first. If I end up getting nowhere, we'll call in your ironic private eye. It's a deal. I knew what I had to do. I had to call Glinda. I'd eliminated her as a suspect, so in a way it seemed like a waste of time. Nonetheless, I knew that I had to call her. As far as I could tell, she was the only person other than myself and Benedict to have seen the inside of that notebook. At the very least, perhaps she'd have some idea as to who could have stolen it. Would she, though? Was that why I needed to call her? I'd been thinking about her lately. Nothing to do with the robbing diary. I'd been wondering why I'd been so quick to forget about her once she disappeared. True, we ended up in a uniquely awkward situation. I'd slept with her, then immediately moved in with her and her ex-boyfriend. If circumstances had been different, perhaps we could have made a go of it, whatever that means. Well, okay, I do know what making a go of it means. It's a crafty way of avoiding more concrete terms like love or whatever. You got me there. The truth was, I'd been thinking about Glinda, wondering what might have been if this stupid pandemic hadn't got in the way. To be fair, the fact that Glinda and I weren't together right now probably had less to do with the pandemic and more to do with my inability to form meaningful relationships with women, a trend which had been recurring consistently for a decade at least. There was something different about this particular woman though. I liked her attitude. And here I was on the verge of calling her to interrogate her on the theft of a book she had absolutely no connection with, other than the fact that I'd shown it to her in an act of drunken bravado. First, I had to get a number from Jamie. That was easy enough. Once I had the number, I spent a whole 24 hours thinking about what I might say, during which time Benedict had texted three or four times from New Zealand asking how my investigations were going. I ignored the texts. The following afternoon, I called Glinda. She was at work and told me she'd call me back that evening. At 10pm, she still hadn't called. I was wondering if she'd fallen asleep. I texted and asked, Is it okay to speak now? Sorry, she texted back. I forgot. Give me five minutes. I spent the following five minutes attempting not to feel hurt that Glinda had forgotten about me so quickly. Five minutes went by and then another five minutes. I wondered if she was expecting me to call her, or if she'd make the call herself when she was ready. I called her. She answered. How's it going? She said. Great, I blurted out. Really? Well, not as great as I would like, I said. I'm living with my Uncle Claude now. Remember I told you about him? It's okay, though. I'm very comfortable where I am. I'm getting some good writing done. How about you? Well, work's a total nightmare, as you'd expect, she said. I nearly said, what do you do again? But thankfully stopped myself. I'm living with my parents, she added. It's actually very comforting too, or it would be if I allowed myself to be in the same room as them. There's no guarantee I haven't picked up this virus already. My folks are vulnerable enough. I'd stay in a hotel if I could. I've got nowhere else to go. Sounds horrible, I said. It is what it is. 
I wanted to say sorry for burning your house down. Glinda cracked up laughing when I said that. Honestly, I said, I really am. I know you are, she chuckled. It's just funny the way you said it. It's funny the way things work out, I suppose, I said. That's true enough. I was wondering, when this is all over, I said, maybe we could go for a drink or something. Sure, she said, that would be nice. Great, I said, thanks, that's made my day. Just as friends, though, yeah, she said. Okay, sure. That's okay with you? I suppose so. Maybe it's not such a good idea, then. Don't get me wrong, I said, it's a great idea. I'm just wondering what's put you off. Nothing in particular, Frank, maybe just the circumstances. We had a drunken fling. I don't usually do that sort of thing, and I guess you don't either, but it happened, and it's in the past. Okay. I do like you, just so you know. I think you're a really great person, and I'd like to get to know you more. If that means just being friends, that's cool. Sorry, I'm talking too much. It's fine, she said. We'll go for a drink, and that will be fun. That would have been the perfect end to this conversation, but for some reason I continued. I've been thinking about you a lot as it happens, I said. Have you? Yes, I can't stop thinking about you, actually. I think I might be in love with you or something like that. It's difficult to tell. It's been a very long time since I've said that to anyone. Listen, she said, cutting me off. I'm very flattered, Frank. I think you'd feel differently if we were able to see each other right now. I think the fact that you're stuck living in your uncle's house has made you start feeling bad about being single and you've started thinking about me, obsessing about me perhaps, not because we're destined to be together or anything like that. I just happen to be the last woman you slept with. Maybe I'd feel the same way about you if I wasn't so caught up with other things at the moment. I'm working 12-hour shifts surrounded by people dying. I can't stop thinking the same thing's going to happen to my mum and dad, sooner rather than later. I don't mean to sound harsh, Frank. I'm aware that's how it does sound. I just needed to say that. It's okay, I said. I understand. You're right. I have to go, she said. And that was that. A couple of hours later, I texted Benedict back. I think you should get in touch with your private detective. Over the following couple of weeks, I texted Benedict every couple of days to ask how the investigation was progressing. I received the same response each time, our man is allocating his resources, or words to that effect. I considered texting Glinda, but didn't. I chatted with Jamie a few times. He was in fairly high spirits considering the position he was in, a frontline health worker during the worst public health crisis in a century. Actually, the more the death toll rose, the more Jamie laughed. He said it was his way of dealing with the situation, and no doubt he'd need to go back into therapy when this was all over. Fourteen days after my phone call with Glinda, I received a WhatsApp video call from an unrecognised number. I'd never had one of those before. For some reason, Glinda was the first person who sprang to mind during those brief seconds where I considered whether or not to take the call. As it turned out, it wasn't her. I was sitting up in bed with my laptop, halfway through a sentence. I answered the call. A bald man stared back at me through the screen. Hello, Frank, he said. Can I help you, I said. Don't you recognise me? You're a bit pixelated at the moment. Surely you recognise my voice. To be honest, it sounds pretty much the same as my own voice, I said. Listen, mate, if you're trying to sell me car insurance or something, I'm kind of in the middle of something.
So you do recognise my voice? Yes, I said. So who are you? Me from the future or the past? You can't be me from the past. I remember making the call. You could say it's a voice from the past. Are you sure you can't see my face clearly enough? Actually, the picture's fixed itself now. So? So what? No, thank you. I already have car insurance. I'll make it a voice call next time. It's disconcerting. Mate, he said, we shared a cell for six whole months. I looked and sounded exactly like this the entire time. I dropped the phone. Then I picked it up again and ended the call. I slammed my laptop shut and rose to my feet. The laptop fell on the floor. The phone rang again. I answered. Hello, Noddy, I said. How's it going? You're not angry, are you, Frank? I understand if you are. Unfortunately, it wasn't safe for me to get back in touch with you. What, I said, after you died? I feel bad about that, he said. Really bad. Especially now I know how much it affected you. I read your book as soon as it came out. I've been keeping an eye on you, Frank, or an ear at least. I've been listening to your podcast. Good to hear someone's listening, I said. I have a few questions. I'm sure you do. Actually, Noddy, can I give you a call back again? I just need five minutes, maybe ten. Sure, said Noddy. I ended the call. I lay down in bed, stuck a pillow over my face and silently wept. I pulled the pillow off my face, paced around the room for a while, went to the bathroom, then returned to my room, sat on the bed. I saved Noddy's number in my phone and called him back. Hi, he said. Sorry, I said, I had to make it audio this time. I'm finding it difficult to look at your face. But I'd like you to know that I'm very happy that you're alive. I'd also like you to know that I'm not angry about any of this. I'm just glad that we're talking again. I'm very happy to hear that, said Noddy. Also, I want you to know the only reason we stopped talking was because, ordinarily, it's strictly forbidden for a community member to fraternise with a member of the public. I ended up befriending you, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. I'm only human. My plan had been to stay mute in prison the whole time. I may have told you some half-truths about my silence, something about not wanting the authorities to know a single thing about me. That was true enough. But what's also true is, I wasn't supposed to be talking to you, either. I just took a liking to you, Frank. Once the stories started flooding out of me, it was difficult to hold them back. In the end, I just thought, what the hell? What's the worst that could happen? It turns out I was right. No one's cover was blown as a result of our friendship, even when you wrote a book about it. I was careful not to reveal too much. Well, you did that very well, I think. I still have no idea who the community are. I don't know your name. As I say, I do have a lot of questions. All in good time, said Noddy. And I mean that. As it happens, there's a very good reason I've contacted you today, and it involves me telling you more than you've been allowed to know previously. I need your help, Frank. I don't wish to sound dramatic, but the community needs your help. Well, I said, did you just say that, Noddy? The community needs my help. The community needs your help. Noddy and I spoke some more, but I won't mention what it was about yet because it won't make any sense. I've mentioned Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary a few times now, but I haven't told you what's inside. 
I was hoping I could get through the whole of this story without disclosing these details, but having reached this stage in the process, it's apparent that none of this will make any sense without the following disclosures. So here we go. In January 2020, Benedict had come over to visit me at a campsite I was staying at in South Wales. This whole thing came about through a discussion about the board game Monopoly and the use of the Get Out of Jail Free card. Wouldn't that be useful in real life, like if you wanted to commit some kind of crime and be guaranteed to get away with it? This sparked the question, if you could commit one crime and receive an instant pardon thanks to your handy Get Out of Jail Free card, what would that crime be? It seemed like we should go for something big. Neither of us had any particular person we'd like to kill and didn't fancy the idea of murdering someone anyway. Robbing a bank seemed much more appealing. But how would we go about it? I didn't have the faintest idea, so that seemed like the end of a brief but fun conversation. Then Benedict said, There is one bank we could rob, if we so wished. I'm a member, you see, so I'm familiar with its security arrangements. A member? What do you mean? I bank with HSBC. I don't know anything about their security arrangements. Are you an actual staff member of this bank? Kind of. Doesn't acting pay enough? It's not a paid position as such. It's a private bank and its patrons are very secretive about it. I really shouldn't be telling you any of this. The bank itself doesn't even exist officially. That's another reason we get away with carrying out the job. We could steal all the money and the bank wouldn't be able to report it without announcing its existence to the world. What's this bank called? I said. Benedict hesitated. It doesn't have a name, he said. It doesn't officially exist. Yes, but what do you call it? You and the other members. Brollywood. Right. So here's what I learned from what Benedict told me. Brollywood Bank dates back to the late 1970s, one of the most tense and uncertain periods in human history. Fears of impending nuclear war were widespread. A number of wealthy individuals are known to have built their own nuclear bunkers for their own personal use, should the need arise. One such bunker belonged to an eccentric, reclusive billionaire called Duncan Carver. Amongst other interests, mostly in the pharmaceutical industry from which he made his fortune, Carver liked to invest in films. It turned out that Carver was phenomenally bad at this particular side hustle. He was one of the chief investors in the 1980 big-budget musical Can't Stop the Music, starring The Village People, which cost $20 million to make and took $2 million at the box office. Evidently deciding that this type of commercial pop culture cash-in was too much of a gamble, Carver invested heavily in a far more prestige production, Directed by Michael Cimino, who'd recently won an Oscar for The Deer Hunter, it seemed like a safe bet. That film was Heaven's Gate, and it made a loss of $40.5 million, the biggest commercial flop in cinema history at that time. Stung by this humiliation, Carver never again invested in a Hollywood movie, but continued quietly contributing to the British film industry. In the early 1990s, after the term Bollywood had become the industry standard term for Indian cinema, Carver made several attempts to popularise the word Brollywood as a byword for British film, presumably a reference to the weather. But being a recluse, he had limited opportunity to make this dream a reality. Presumably, it was just another item on an ever-expanding billionaire's wish list. 
By this stage, the nuclear bunker built on the grounds of Carver's large Lincolnshire estate was gathering dust. Carver still corresponded with various contacts in the film industry, mostly by letter. He was an engaging, thoughtful and entertaining writer with a sly, self-deprecating sense of humour. He always signed off each of his letters with the words, Ever yours, the great, eccentric, reclusive billionaire Duncan Carver. This was mostly taken as an ironic joke by each of Carver's recipients. But in the summer of 1992, Carver received a reply from the actor Anthony Hopkins, who'd picked up on his use of the term recluse. I understand you're friends with a number of actors, Hopkins wrote. I'm not entirely sure whether you qualify as a recluse or not, given the number of people you correspond with, but it occurs to me that members of my profession often feel drawn towards self-professed recluses, such as yourself. Perhaps we can relate more than most. We spend the entirety of our working lives hiding behind various characters. The more well-known among us will appear in public as ourselves, but again, we're just playing a different kind of part. We're playing the part of actors promoting a new film or play, revealing very little about our actual selves. Underneath it all, we're all recluses. We're all eccentrics too, I suspect. But what's to be done about all of this? Is there a place we can go where we can truly be ourselves? I suspect not. Arguably, we can't even truly be ourselves in our own homes. We're too busy playing a different kind of part, the part of husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, responsible adults. Where else can we go but to retreat within ourselves? These are, of course, rhetorical questions, Mr Carver. Naturally, I'm not asking for a solution. I don't necessarily need one. To Hopkins' astonishment, Carver did more than simply reply. He had a practical solution to his friend's existential dilemma. If you're interested, he wrote, I have a place you and your fellow actors can utilise if you so wish. It was built with the intention of serving as a nuclear bunker. Essentially, it's a three-storey house buried underground, which doesn't officially exist. It was built without planning permission, so it contravenes all local bylaws. My thinking at the time was, what's the point of having a nuclear bunker if its existence is public knowledge? It all seems rather unnecessary now, but there you have it. Literally, Mr Hopkins, there you have it. I would be more than happy for you and your fellow members of the acting community to use this space as your own. Go there whenever you like and be yourself there. Do whatever it is that you've always wanted to do. Carver signed off, as always. Ever yours, the great eccentric reclusive billionaire, Duncan Carver. Hopkins wrote back. Dear great eccentric reclusive billionaire Duncan Carver. Goodness me, thank you very much for this kind offer. I will have to give this some thought and will discuss this with any potentially interested parties. What I will say at this stage is, I think this idea is the very thing I've been searching for for many years now. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. The only potential stumbling block I can think of is that in order to truly embrace this opportunity, myself and my fellow interested parties would have to have some official excuse for travelling all the way to Lincolnshire. To speak frankly, we would need a cover story. Telling our nearest and dearest that we're off to Lincolnshire in order that we might be ourselves for a while would raise a few too many awkward questions. Questions such as, why on earth can't you just be yourself at home? Or even more troublingly, are you seriously telling me you haven't been yourself this whole time? Who are you? 
I'm sure you can understand my reasoning here, Mr. Carver. My proposition is simple. Let's call this an investment opportunity. We're travelling to Lincolnshire to speak with movie mogul Duncan Carver about putting some money into something or other. I haven't quite figured out the fine details yet. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Carver replied, Dear Mr Hopkins, here are my thoughts. I can't be sure if your labelling me a movie mogul was intended as an insult, or was it a misguided attempt at flattery? Either way, I am no more a movie mogul than you are Dr Frederick Trebis. This isn't even a particularly helpful analogy, given that your performance as Dr Frederick Trebis in the film The Elephant Man was first rate, whereas my performance as a movie mogul has been less than convincing. I'm fairly sure that within the upper echelons of your industry, my name has become a byword for failure. The only reason the word carver hasn't become a more generalised byword for failure is that, as luck would have it, there happens to be a universally lauded American writer who happens to have the same surname as me. I suppose I should be grateful for that. Anyway, here's my suggestion. Don't say you're meeting the famous failure Duncan Carver. It would be embarrassing for both of us. If we're talking about investing money, why not try something slightly different? Rather than investing your money, perhaps you could just place your money. The nuclear bunker by its very nature is a highly secure facility. Would it be ludicrous to suggest that yourself and your acting friends adopt it as your own private bank? It would be easy enough to build a vault down there. Each participant could pay a monthly fee towards upkeep and security, etc. How does that sound? You and your friends could invest as little or as much as you like. Ever yours, the great eccentric reclusive billionaire Duncan Carver. Hopkins replied with a hastily scribbled note. Yes, 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 and to label the point some more, yes please, Mr Carver. I have discussed this already with various members of the acting community and we are all in. Please send further details. I realise you're a recluse and everything, but if you're able to pass on a telephone number, that would be most appreciated. Right, I said. So you're a member of a private bank based in a former nuclear bunker in Lincolnshire founded by Anthony Hopkins and an eccentric billionaire. They founded it, yes, Benedict nodded. Carver died a few years later and Hoppo hasn't been involved for many years. Shortly after the bank opened, the remains of the day was released. Then, silence of the lamps. After that, Hoppo was spending most of his time in L.A. Who's Hoppo? It's short for Hopkins. Well, I've never heard him call that. It's only close friends who use that one. Nice, I said, very cosy. What do they call you? I'm not sure if I want to reveal that information. It's just you and me here, mate. Who am I going to tell? OK, he said, peering at his shoes. As it happens, they call me Nigel. I couldn't help laughing. The joke being, my actual name is too elaborate to easily pronounce after a few drinks. Why can't you just be called Nigel like everyone else? Someone said. I think it was Nigel Havers. Anyway, they all had a big laugh about it, and I've been called Nigel ever since. And the other Nigels? They have their own nicknames. Let's not get into what everyone else's nicknames are. I shouldn't even have mentioned Hoppo's one. This is a proper secret society, isn't it? I said, perking up at the realisation. I don't mean the acting community, this bank of yours. 
Yes, he said. That's exactly what it is. It's fascinating, I said. You'll have to tell me about it in a minute, or whatever you're allowed to reveal, at least. But it's just occurred to me this is very, very similar to an arrangement my dad had with some friends and my uncle Claude when I was a kid. A few guys got together and they rented a flat. They all chipped in an equal share. They kept the place a secret from their wives and girlfriends. You know what they did there? I'm guessing they weren't storing large sums of cash in the place. As it turns out, the flat was a place for these men to go and be themselves. Interesting. Is this a male thing, I wonder? It was old blokes who were part of my dad's group. As far as I can tell, they all felt the same way, like they were putting on an act the whole time. Is that how you feel, by the way? Is that why you signed up to Brollywood Bank? You needed a place to go and be yourself. Benedict shrugged. It's more of a hobby, really. I'm the company secretary, as it happens. That doesn't really mean anything, to be honest. It's not a real bank. It's a storage unit for a heap of cash. No one's earning any interest on it. The money's just there as our cover story. So what do people do when they go there? Oh, all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, said Benedict with a sly smile. You should see Dominic West's train set. It's immaculate. The thing has its own timetable. And then there's Jason Isaac's puppet theatre and Damien Lewis's naked dance parties. It seems to me that everyone has their own use for the space. Brollywood can be whatever you want it to be. Is it all men? I said. Not exclusively, said Benedict. Winslet pops in from time to time. To be fair, she's never gone as far as keeping any money there. She's just curious as to what goes on. That answers my question, I said. It's a boys' club. I suppose so. So how much money is actually kept on the premises if we're going to rob the place? We're not going to do that. I don't mean literally. It would just be fun to figure out how we'd pull this off. It would also be interesting to know how much money we'd make from it. Off the top of my head, said Benedict, it's somewhere in the region of a hundred million. He said it so casually I couldn't tell if he were joking. Are you okay? he said. Pounds, I said. Sorry? You and your boys club have buried a hundred million quid in a hole in the ground in Lincolnshire. It's not a hole in the ground, said Benedict wearily. It's a highly secure facility. The place has a purpose-built vault in the lower floor. That's just as impenetrable as any actual bank vault. It also has manned security, armed guards, surveillance technology. Really? Of course this is a hundred million pounds we're talking about here, Frank. I thought the money was just a cover story. It is. Then why is there so much of it? Is it a tax dodge or something? Absolutely not, said Benedict. Everyone seems to think that when you first introduced the idea. I'm sure that's how the press would try to spin it if they ever got hold of a story, even though it would be very easy to prove otherwise. That still doesn't answer my question, I said. Why is there so much money down there? We're talking about some very rich men, said Benedict. I don't do too badly myself, but then if you consider... Now... Due to some details yet to be revealed, I will have to introduce the recurring label Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons. If you consider, said Benedict, that Famous Man Who Cannot Be Named For Legal Reasons is a member of this bank, well, 
perhaps it wouldn't surprise you to know that at least half of that total 100 million belongs to famous men who cannot be named for legal reasons. To someone like famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons, 50 million is a drop in the ocean. And then there's Hugh Grant. Who? Come on, you know who I mean. I've got to be honest, Benedict, all these names you keep dropping, I honestly don't have a clue who any of these people are. Fine, he said. There is a famous man who goes by the name Hugh Grant. He has a lot of money. He doesn't use the Brollywood facilities much due to his busy schedule, but that hasn't stopped him tossing a few million pounds our way over the years. Such large amounts of money, in fact, that his nickname is... Well, you can probably guess. I don't know. Granty? Huge Grant. That would make more sense. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that, he added. This is getting interesting now, I said. We have an impenetrable vault three floors below ground. We have armed guards, cameras. So even with yourself as company secretary, we can't just waltz in there and help ourselves. I suppose we can call you our inside man, Benedict. But how do we do this without implicating you? This is what we have to consider, he said. Hang on, I said. I've got a notebook kicking around here somewhere. Let's get back to that phone call with Noddy. The community needs your help, he said. How can I help, I said. We understand yourself and your friend Benedict have been working on some plans. Oh my God, I said. Don't panic, said Noddy. I didn't steal them. I'm just as concerned about them going missing as you are. Really? Well, said Noddy. Then he said the word well again a couple more times. I haven't seen you this lost for words since you were mute, I said. Concerned is probably the wrong choice of word, he said. I'm searching for a more appropriate one. Interested. That's the one I'll go for. What are you interested in exactly? We're interested in who stole that notebook. We're interested in how they knew where it was and we're very interested in what they're going to do next. Presumably they're going to steal £50 million from Brollywood Bank, I said. They could, in theory. They'd have to modify the plans a little, though. Our scheme relies on having Benedict as the inside guy. If anyone tried to replicate that plan... It could be done, said Noddy. I could do it, for example. How would you do it? I said. It wouldn't be easy, he said, but I could do it. I could impersonate Benedict. There's enough footage of him available to study. Given the time, I could do it. I could walk in there and pass myself off as Benedict Cumberbatch. How would you know all the nicknames, though? What if you ran into Nigel Havers? What would you call him? We can get that kind of information, said Noddy. Can you? I said. We have our sources. I'm sure you can get hold of all sorts of information about Nigel Havers, I said. It wouldn't surprise me if you knew his national insurance number, his passport number, or the name of his first pet. But how are you going to find out his nickname? It's not written down anywhere. It's buried inside a select group of people's heads and is rarely spoken aloud. That is true, said Noddy. When I say we have our sources, I mean all we'd need to do is ask your friend Benedict. He will be our source. Talking of Benedict, by the way, I presume he hasn't alerted Brollywood Bank to the fact that the plans have been stolen. He hasn't, I said. We assumed that would be the case. Why did you assume that? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. If I was him, I'd be on the phone telling everyone to pull their money straight out of there. He can't do that, said Noddy not without admitting to having betrayed their trust by blabbing about their secrets to his friend, and how could he possibly explain how he came to have drawn up plans for a highly sophisticated bank heist? Can I just take a breath here, mate? I said. 
Of course. I took a breath. Are you okay? said Noddy after a while. This is a lot to take in, I said. I still have a lot of questions. I'm not sure if I'm prepared for the answers yet. Take all the time you need. Also, I can't wait to ask you all of these questions and I'm really excited to know what the answers might be. No problem. Whenever you're ready. Okay, I said. I'm ready. Fire away. First question. How did you know about the notebook in the first place? Also, how did you know it had been stolen? I can understand why you're reluctant to hear the answer, said Noddy. I need to know, though. Of course you do. You have every right to know. I apologise for what I'm about to say. You'll have figured this out already, I'm sure. Seriously, I haven't. I haven't got a clue. I think you know, Frank. You must know there's only one possible explanation for how we came to hold all this information. Which is? We've had you under surveillance for the last few weeks. What kind of surveillance? Phone calls, mostly. We do have the ability to listen to your face-to-face -face conversations, too. Once your phone is hacked, we have access to the microphone. I know this sounds incredibly sinister, Frank, and that's because it is. I want you to know that there's absolutely nothing sinister about our reasons for listening. We just wanted to get to the bottom of this thing, this mystery. Right, I said. I'm just about okay with you listening to my calls, mate. If it was anyone else in the world, I'd have some major issues right now. Let's just backtrack a bit. You say you've had me under surveillance for the last few weeks. What for? What started it? You really have no idea, said Noddy. I really don't. Do you remember making an appearance on a podcast called, um, what was it again? Tent Pod? It's Tent Cast, I think. I'm surprised you caught that, mate. I'm not sure anyone else did. I'm not a regular listener myself, said Noddy. As you suggest, judging by the content, it's unlikely anyone else is either. The fact of the matter is, the community has access to some highly sophisticated technology. I couldn't even begin to explain how any of it works. But in basic terms, anything that's released online, whether it's text, audio, video or whatever, is scanned for various keywords and phrases. One of those keywords and phrases is Frank Burton. You're in the database because of your connection to me. Other keywords and phrases include various forms of illegal activity. Bank heist, for example. So, a few weeks ago, we were alerted to an episode of Tent Pod. Cast, I said. Sure, an episode of Tent Cast containing the words Frank Burton plus the repeated use of the words bank heist. Someone checked it out and were rather surprised by what they heard. They passed it on to me. I listened. I was intrigued. I thought, what's my old friend up to? I couldn't help myself. This story about the bank and your plans to rob it, however hypothetical those plans may have been, was enough to prompt me to start keeping an eye on you. It's thanks to my curiosity that we discovered the notebook has been stolen. It's all there in your conversations with Benedict over the phone. So, now I'm even more intrigued. More than that, we all are. So, you didn't steal Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary? Absolutely not. That's not our style. So why are you so interested in it? Don't you have better things to do? At this moment in time, said Noddy, there is nothing more important than this very subject. I took another breath. Then I said, why's that? Because, said Noddy, we know who took that notebook and we'd very much like to meet them. Thank you for listening. 
You now have the choice of moving straight on to episode 5 or you can stick around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It is called the footnote section. You are going to love it if you choose to listen. Check it out or I will see you in episode 5. If you like what you have heard, please visit my website, frankburton.co.uk, for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I have written several books, including the first two installments of the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Ebar from the band Herman Dune. It's called Not On Top. You should listen to that. Oh, and also check out the video series, The Ragbag Rambler, which is also on my website. That's the only place you can see it. And uh, that's excellent too. I will see you very soon. Right, so here we are once again at the footnotes section. Welcome to the footnotes section. Um, so let's get straight into the footnotes, shall we? Um, mem- mentions of the robbing diary. So obviously there's quite a few references to the robbing diary uh, on this episode of Ragbag Presents Bollywood. So um, I will draw your attention to the fact that the announcement of the disappearance of the robbing diary took place... Uh, just when I said it did, uh, in 2020, during the summer of 2020. If you go back to the Ragbag podcast and uh, listen to the various different mentions of the Robbing Diary at that time, I was going to give you a whole uh, rundown and a whole inventory of episodes in which the Robbing Diary is mentioned. But I'd have to spend hours and hours listening to them all. I can't be bothered to do that. Let's just have a quick look. I believe I had a run of episodes over the summer... Had some great guests on during that time. Thomas Truax, Fred Voss, New Spell, Forrest Bees, Ben Goldberg. Oh, some great guests on here. Oh. I mean, I'd, I'd, I have said this before. I mean, I, th- I think having guests on the show didn't quite work. Uh, but we did have some great guests, though, didn't we? It didn't quite fit with the rest of the show, is what I was trying to say. Just having the guests themselves is great. 
but kind of having the guests alongside bits of music and my sort of weird shtick alongside it didn't quite two didn't quite match up together but um this is the period that we're talking about anyway of mid-period ragbag <laughs> mid-period mid-period ragbag it's about halfway through the run about episode 50 that sort of thing episode 50 onwards episode 50 was asher that was a brilliant interview i really, really enjoyed that yet the first mention of the plans for a bank heist with benedict occurred in an episode called middle distance which is episode 40 so from then on once we'd done the actual plan for the bank heists uh, we go through you know a few weeks later and then the then the robbing diary goes missing and there's very t- what i'm trying to say is <laughs> in my own sort of slapdash sort of way of having done no research into my own podcast is that there are various mentions of the robbing diary during the year 2020 which is when the Brollywood story takes place. So it's, it, it all matches up, doesn't it? It all matches up. It's uh, it's very clever how this is done, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, you probably... You may, you may have listened to it and then forgotten all about it by this point, you know, because we're now in 2022 and, uh, you know, other things have happened since then. You've all got lives. How do I expect you to remember all these things that I just kind of mentioned in passing? Because um, it wasn't a big part of the podcast. It was just kind of a story that was going on in the background. And uh, maybe you listened to it at the time and thought, oh, I wonder what that whole notebook thing's all about. Well, now I'm telling you. <laughs> now I'm doing the Bollywood story. This is what the notebook thing was about, OK? It's very complex, this show, isn't it? It's, very, um, it's a lot of ins and outs and Easter eggs. Let's call them Easter eggs. I like, I'm not entirely sure what an Easter egg is. Well, I know what an actual Easter egg is. It's a chocolate egg. But I, I don't know what the, the other term, Easter egg. I, I kind of, I've kind of got a... A vague idea as, as to what it is, but I'm not 100% sure on the details. Whatever an Easter egg is, this is what it is, okay? <laughs> getting getting the footnotes section off to a great start here. You know, uh, the unscripted section of the show. Um, it's optional. You don't have to listen to this. Um, I, this is just for the, um, you know, the hardcore fans, isn't it? Uh, there's a reference to a BAFTA-winning TV drama. I don't mention the name of it um, in the episode. The... The battle-winning TV drama in question is Sherlock, in case anyone hadn't figured that out already. Cabin Pressure, the sitcom, is mentioned again. Uh, you can see what we're doing here. It's a bit of a running, running joke about uh, the Cabin Pressure, the radio sitcom that Benedict was in uh, a few years back, before he became a superhero and all that sort of thing. Now, Can't Stop the Music. This is the Village People's film, um, which I'm very interested. I'd, I'd really like to see it one day, because... Um, it was such a catastrophic failure that it must be a great movie. That's, <laughs> that's what I think. And uh, I'm kind of uh, I'm fascinated by the village people themselves as well. I think it's some, something quite fascinating about the, them as a success story. Because, you know, there are what you could call like a, a manufactured pop band that they're not you know they're not like a group of friends who got together in college and said yeah let's dress up as uh, <laughs> dress up in all these outfits and um yeah do all these pop songs no that they were they were the manufactured pop acts who were specifically targeted towards the gay scene and in particular gay fans of disco you know there's a i guess that they looked at the figures and stuff like that there's the there's a certain number of gay people who are into disco so let's target something specifically towards them 
and you know that's not the way it worked out they became like a real a mainstream act a re really massive kind of uh, pop group with really big hits just looking at their wikipedia entry and they did things like they they went they went out to entertain the troops the the US army <laughs> now that's that that is not the sort of thing that uh, a kind of minority act who are specifically targeted towards the LGBT community would be expected to do. But I mean, I think it's, uh, it's what happened is they just became a, this huge commercial success. And uh, I don't know what the reaction was from kind of the conservative. I've got no idea. Like, what what did the conservative media make of them? Did they just let them get on with it, or did they write disparaging articles condemning this filth? I don't know. I mean, I I don't know anything about them. I don't know whether the actual members of Village People were gay or not, or whether they were just kind of, you know, hired hands in um, a thing that was targeted towards the LGBT community, but then not specifically targeted them at all, more targeted towards everyone. But, you know, I, I think it's pretty cool that this happened, you know. I think it's, I think it's pretty awesome that in... You think of the 1970s as, as being... I wasn't around then, but I, I remember what it was like in the 1980s and 90s. A, extremely homophobic time compared to now. It's unbelievable. I mean, I think young people, uh, people who were born after the year 2000, if you tell them about what life was like in the 20th century, it's, uh, it's beggar's belief that the huge amounts of progress that have been made i mean i know that there is progress still to be made but if you look at how far we've come from when i was in school there were no openly gay people at my school whatsoever it just went and that i presume that the vast majority of other schools were exactly like that as well you tell that to someone who's at school right now did anyone who's at high school will easily introduce you to their lesbian friend or their bisexual friend or their transgender friend. The idea of transgender wasn't even a topic of conversation when I was a kid, you know. Or or it, maybe it was, but in, in a very sort of, have you heard about this thing? That, that sort of, you know, that sort of uh, real kind of uh, outsider shock value. Uh, and is it a thing? Is it a real thing? Or is it not a real thing? That that's those were the conversations that people were having. So the, the village people, you know, we're talking about a time even further back than that, which I presume there there was a lot more bigotry then. That you know, if you look at the the bigotry trajectory, <laughs> it it must have been even worse in the seventies. Just presumably it was. So for a band like the village people to become this kind of huge success story, and to make this move, even though the movie flopped. Um, and I don't know why the movie flopped. Uh, what well, maybe it was a really bad film, or maybe maybe it was something to do with people don't want to go to the cinema and see what amounts to like an, a fairly overt representation of homosexuality. I don't know. I don't know how gay the film is. You know, in terms of like, do they? That that's another thing that intrigues me about it as well. I'm just wondering: is is there a gay element to the film, or is it? Is it just some songs and kind of a light-hearted story to go with the songs? Maybe a few kind of innuendos, but no kind of specific... You hear the plane? 
Can you hear the plane? There's a plane. It's a shame I'm not recording the I Like the Sound podcast. I could have made something more of that. What was I saying? I was distracted by the plane. Um, yeah, that's it's what. Like I say, I haven't seen the film, so I don't know. But I'm just wondering whether how kind of explicit the homosexuality in the film is, or if there is any there at all. I don't know. So yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. The village people, aren't they? A very interesting group. Apparently, they're still together. I didn't know about this. There's only one original member, but you know, they're they're still touring the hits. They kind of toured the UK. I would have noticed. <laughs> I would have noticed the posters around, and um, yeah, maybe that's passed me by. I don't know. I think if the village people were in town, I think a lot of people would would like to go and see them. And uh, again, it's it's not an LGBT audience. It's just like people who like silly pop music um, from the olden days. There's lots of those, and you know, I, I'm one of them as well. I mean, I, I can't. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a fan of the village people's music, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, it is what it is, isn't it? I mean, it's just like it's just like a fun. They're just like a, a fun, a pop group from the seventies, and um, you know, good luck to them. I'm glad that they're still together. Good for them, I say. And uh, the other film that I haven't seen that I've made a reference to is Heaven's Gate, which um, was uh, apparently the biggest commercial flop of its time. And uh, again, I haven't seen the film. Maybe it's good. I don't know. Maybe it's a good movie. I can't say whether it is or not. I haven't seen it. Uh, Remains of the Day, the Anthony Hopkins uh, film. I have seen that. That's pretty good. It's got uh, got Christopher Reeve in. It's weird seeing Christopher Reeve, wasn't it, in roles where he wasn't Superman. He ne- he never quite shook it off, did he? I don't think it was just uh, when you saw Christopher Reeve in a film, and he wasn't Superman. Everyone just thought, oh, Superman's here. <laughs> It was a it was an iconic role. He did a good job. I've, uh, I, I used to love those old Superman movies, and I guess that's why I'd, I I couldn't see Christopher Reeve in another sort of light. You know, as saw him in Remains of a Day, I'm like, what the hell? What's Superman doing here? But you know, there you go. Silence of the Lambs uh, is mentioned as well. Um, you know about Silence of the Lambs, don't you? <laughs> I don't need to tell you about it. The Elephant Man. Now, if you haven't seen the Elephant Man, that's that's the brilliant brilliant movie david lynch film uh not necessarily a typical david lynch film really it, it it's kind of uh has its own kind of weirdness to it but there isn't because it's a true story i guess it, there's no there's none of the lynchian uh, surrealist elements in that film but yeah great great movie great performance by uh mr hopkins uh yeah i uh i i, I discussed the elephant man with Thomas Truax, who I just mentioned a little while ago, uh, earlier in this little ramble of mine. Thomas Truax was a guest on the Ragbag podcast, and um, I love Thomas Truax. I've been to see him live. I uh, went to see him live a few months ago. It was uh, fantastic. Such such a great performer and such an eccentric character. Um, such great songs as well. He, he recorded an album of. The album, I think, is called Songs from the Films of David Lynch. And it's all... Yeah, does exactly what it says on the tin. It's um, Songs from the Films of David Lynch done in Thomas Truax's unique style. It does an absolutely brilliant version of Blue Velvet. Thomas Truax's version of Blue Velvet. Listen to that. It uh, really is a great cover. 
and as I say, great, great guy, great guy. <laughs> I just can't get my words out here. This is um, this is what happens when you have when you decide to just do like an unscripted uh, podcast. Luckily, this is just like some bit that's tacked onto the end of a of a <laughs> of a really tightly scripted and um, carefully edited piece of work. But yeah, it's all going splendidly well. There's a reference to um, the universally lauded American writer. That's the first of two references to Raymond Carver in this series. Watch out for the other one. Just a coincidence that I referenced Raymond Carver twice in this series. I didn't necessarily mean to. It just kind of popped out. I guess I would use Raymond Carver as like shorthand uh, whenever I want to make a reference to like a writer who writes about nothing really well. So that, that's better. If, if you don't know who Raymond Carver is, I suggest that you check out his short stories. And uh, yeah, he's the guy who writes about nothing. It's very good. <laughs> it's very good. It's a faint praise there for a universally lauded American writer Raymond Carver. Now, there's there's references to lots of famous people in this episode. I'm aware of that. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them. You you might not. You, you probably know who they are because they're all internationally famous. Apart, I suspect, from Nigel Havers, who I think is uh, is a famous name in the UK. Uh, he's been in a lot of British TV. I know that he was in. Uh, he's had a film career as well. He was in the film Chariots of Fire. I'm sure he's, he was in other ones as well, but maybe if you're an international listener, which most of you are, you may not know who Nigel Havers is. He's he's just you know just some guy, isn't he? He's an actor. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of actors called Nigel. There's a joke. Obviously, there's a joke about there being lots of actors called Nigel. He's one of them. Obviously, um, it's one of, part of that generation of Nigels. So there we have it. That's all of the uh, the references for this time. I guess I've still got time to do cliche of the week. Are we still doing cliche of the week? It's become a bit of a cliche in itself, has it not, Frank? Well, let's think of a, a cliche. There was one that um, popped into my head, actually. There's a TV series recently that I watched that had a character in who was kind of a kind of a recluse, really. She was very kind of um, very lonely, very sad character, and she read lots of books. She had loads and loads of books. All she did was read books all the time. And um, she didn't do anything else apart from that, really. Various different times, kind of, um, throughout this TV series, she used to say things like, well, um... <laughs> I'm trying to, try, trying to think of uh, an example of what one of the lines of dialogue. I, I'm really sad, so I have to read books all the time. Or something like that. Or, or uh, I think perhaps I read books all of the time because I've got no life of my own and I have to escape into these other worlds. It's a funny one, this. You used to see this particular cliché quite a lot. You don't see it as much now, but obviously it's still prevalent. I mean, this was kind of a, a big kind of uh, BBC TV drama. It was it was a good show, um, apart from this bit. So it's what I'm saying is it's still kind of a, a prevalent idea that um, people who read novels are a little bit sad and lonely and they're doing it so that they can escape into another world. Which I think, uh, you know, anyone who reads books would disagree with that analysis of the situation. Just because you're reading a book doesn't mean doesn't mean that you're, you want to escape necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want to escape reality. And 
what I don't get is, why don't you see the same argument being put forward about other forms of fiction, like TV and film and theatre, for example? You know, it's more difficult to argue, isn't it? Because going to the theatre or going to the cinema are communal experiences and therefore you're engaging with society in some way. But in another way, it's exactly the same as sitting down and reading a book. All you're doing is that you're not interacting with other people. You're just kind of engaging with the story, whatever the story happens to be. I guess because reading is a solitary pursuit, whereas you can watch TV with somebody else. But a lot of the time you don't watch TV with somebody else. A lot of the time you're just watching movies or watching TV on your own, or you can go to the theatre on your own. I used to love going to the theatre on my own. I used to do it a lot. It was great. I used to, when I was a student, I used to get student tickets to the theatre at Chester Festival Theatre. If there were spare seats going, they'd just give them away to students, or they would sell them to students for like a pound or something like that. And I used to go to the theatre on my own quite a lot. It was it was uh, fantastic. And it wasn't because I was lonely, it's because um, <laughs> none of my mates were into it, you know. <laughs> none, of my, none of my friends would said, do you want to come to the theatre, mate? And, uh, you know, my friends would say, no, no, I don't. Go on your own. So that's what I did. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and the thing is, I think I'll, I'll go one further as well. And I'll say that reading fiction is not a means of escaping reality, necessarily. It could be. It, you could be doing for that reason. You could be wanting to get away from your surroundings and lose yourself in a book for a while. And that's cool. And uh, that that's a nice thing to do, obviously. Uh, but also, I, I think that reading books is a way of engaging with reality. Depending on what you're reading, obviously. I mean, if you're reading a, a book about somebody's experiences, somebody's life experiences... That is your way of engaging with that person's experiences and, and coming across another person and engaging with the writer who has written the book and engaging with the characters, even if they're fictional characters. It, they're still a representation of lived experience. Even fantasy is. Even reading Alice in Wonderland is a means of engaging with reality, I would say. Because there's even though it's a fantastical story, there are emotions within the story that are replicated from real life experiences. There's a lot of anxiety in um, Alice in Wonderland. I think it's, it's, maybe it's a story about anxiety. It's kind of like a dream, isn't it? Also in its own way, I mean, I think I've hit the nail on the head there really. Yeah, well done Frank, you've hit the nail on the head there with that uh, analogy. Dreams are exactly that. Dreams are our way of making sense of reality. You have, you have an experience during the daytime and then during the nighttime, that experience gets kind of replicated in a dream and gets turned into this kind of weird surrealist story in your head. And it's it's part of your brain kind of processing what you have been through. And I've described that as a means of engaging with reality. So there you have it. Um, I think that's, uh, I think it's a, it's a bit of a cheap cliche, that one. I don't like it at all. The, whenever you see a character who's kind of sad and lonely and reclusive and they want to lose themselves by reading books, it's, uh, it's not an accurate representation at all of what people who read books are like. It really isn't. 
and you you don't see it you only ever see it. <laughs> it's an obvious point to make but you only ever see it in films or or tv you don't see this cliche have take place in books do you for obvious reasons you'd be extremely insulted if you read that in a book but you know you see it on a tv show and um you just have to take it on the chin but uh i will not be taking it on the chin it's an absolute outrage <laughs> I should write, uh, <laughs> I said, uh, for the international viewers, we have a, uh, a TV show, which is still going, um, it's called Points of View, it's where um, uh, people write in to BBC television to complain about things that they've seen on the TV, and it's all kind of little nitpicky things, like like the thing that I just brought up really is, I really am nitpicking, you know what I mean, it was, it was a good show, I can't remember the name of it, so it can't have been that good, but it was a compelling drama. And the only thing that let it, let it down was this character who kind of uh, read books in order to escape from her mundane reality. And, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that uh, uh, if I was that way inclined, I, I would write a letter to BBC Points of View. And um, all, all the letters that you see on that show are really going, this is an absolute outrage. <laughs> They're all kind of, the tone of them is kind of like that, you know. Little explainer there for the international viewers what points of view is. Do you have the equivalent uh, in your country? Do you have um, like a, a TV show where people can write in and complain about other TV shows? And if so, what sorts of things do they complain about? I look forward to hearing. <laughs> Please write to me and uh, tell me all about it. Oh, well, well, don't write to me and tell me about that. But write to me and tell me about other things because I'm, I'm interested in what sorts of people listen to this and... Um, what your experiences are and uh, what what your lives are like, yeah. Tell me all about your life. That would be uh, that would be fantastic. So yeah, let's wrap things up then. I'll see you in the next uh, episode, and then for the hardcore amongst you, I will also see you in the next footnotes.